So recently, 22 of us who were investing in friendships with each other left and went to Israel for 10 days. And it was a dynamic moment for us. It was, in fact, many of us have been asked the, the same questions, questions such as, how was it? And what was your takeaway? And the takeaway simply means, what did you bring back that made a difference in your life? For Pam and I, we brought back the, what we've affectionately now called the Philistine flu. <laughs> she got sick at the airport before we were supposed to come back. We had to spend an extra day in Jerusalem while she was recovering. And then when we got back, we got 10 minutes from the church, and I got hit with it. So we want to thank Israel for Goliath's revenge, because we got it. <laughs> That's one of our takeaways. But there were better ones. So the, 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 the first question, how was it? It was incredible. In fact, we are in the process now of planning to take another group in two years. So begin saving your money. And we'll let you know it'll probably be two years from October. And uh, it'll just be phenomenal. You need to go. The, the takeaway part, we really don't know the takeaway part until we begin to realize what we've taken from that encounter and begin to activate it into our 24-hour living. And so this morning, I want to share with you one of those takeaways for me that I am processing through. To help guide us around Israel, we had this, this wonderful guy. He's 31 years old. His name is Guy. He is a, that's him with the sunglasses on. He's, he's a 31-year-old archaeologist and just brought brilliant understanding to the places that we were in the history of Israel and and their wars and the Six-Day War and all that was involved. It was, just, it, was, it was really great. And as we're wrapping up the trip, he's trying to give us capsulated views of things. And so he said, I want to tell you how you can remember, how you can remember the Jewish holidays. And so he gave us a summary of every Jewish holiday. And it really helps. So here's the summary for every Jewish holiday he gave us. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. I love it. That's the holiday. All their holidays. About 10, maybe 15 years after Paul the Apostle wrote to the Gentile and the Jewish followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, the Jews in Jerusalem rose up against the Roman rule. Obviously, Rome then flooded in tamped down that insurrection, utterly destroyed the temple, completely wiped it out, and subdued the nation. There were a group of zealots that made their way out of Jerusalem down to a place called Masada. Masada is down by the Dead Sea in the wilderness. It actually was first created by King Herod decades before as a place for his own palace and his own security. He was a paranoid little sucker that would kill people who got in his way and he was so afraid that he had to have a place to escape to so he created this wonderful, wonderful palace 450 meters high, about 1,500 feet high, just a little bit larger than the Empire State Building. He made it so that he could sustain life up there. They had these, these, these cisterns that they had built into the rock 
And their engineers had created in such a way that in the surrounding springs and the mountains, they made it so that the water would come down. And you know the whole principle that water seeks its own level. And so it would make its way back up into these cisterns. And so they had plenty of water and storehouses galore. The name of Masada actually means stronghold. And so this was an incredible place of security. So these zealots had made their way to Masada, taken over the garrison, the Roman garrison there, killed them, and now we're living in this place. There's only two, two roads or two paths up to the top of this thing, and so it's impregnable. You can't get into it. History says that from this spot, they would go out and have skirmishes with the Romans, and finally the Romans had it, and so Flavius Silva took 10,000 troops and surrounded it. They built a siege wall. And then with the help of Jewish prisoner of war slaves, they began to pile up dirt to create a siege ramp up to the main gate. When they had gotten high enough, they then rolled up a siege tower and then from the siege tower set the gates on fire. They knew it was only be a matter of time when they'd be able to flood in. In Masada at that time were 967 men, women, and children. They were under the direction of Eliezer Ben-Yer. Eliezer was running the troops at that moment. He knew. He knew there was no way for them to break out. He knew there was no escape. The Romans knew that soon they would have a large number of captives. And finally, when the gate had burned through, they charged in but found no captives. For every one of the 967 were dead. What Eliezer had done just before they had broken in is he had made this speech according to Josephus, a Jewish historian. He said, let our wives die before they are abused and our children before they have tasted slavery. And after we have slain them, let us bestow that glorious benefit upon one another. So one evening before the Romans broke in, families went to bed and the fathers then went through and killed their children. I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. And also then their wife. The remaining men drew lots and ten names were drawn and those ten then killed the remainder of those men. Lots were drawn again and one then killed the other nine, set fire to all the buildings and then fell on his own sword. So what happened to they tried to kill us We won. Let's eat. As you're listening to this story there at Masada, and you can hear it talked about in other places through Israel, you have a sense that there's a great national pride in this resistance, which I understand. But there was a startling moment as we stood on top of that huge mountain in that place where the ruins of the palace are located. And Guy our 31-year-old archaeologist, made a statement that just took our breath away. He said to us, so how do you think the children of those who were here feel about what they did? It was a trick question. There are no children. And then he said, I have taken you from place to place within this land and shown to you 
how at the last moment when there seems to be no escape, Jehovah God rescues. But he said at this moment, this moment we have been robbed of the fact that we're able to tell our children generation after generation after generation about this Jehovah God who rescues his people. We have been robbed of that moment. There is no heritage. There is no generation. There are no families. There was no faith in Jehovah God at this moment. So my question for us in this place today, thousands of miles away from that Masada, my question to us is, where is your Masada? Where is that place that you have come to where you thought that you were protected and you thought that God had you covered and you thought it was all going to be okay and now at this moment you are ready to turn over and die because you see no way to break out. You are ready to just collapse into your fear. He's been unfaithful to you before and you thought it was all solved and you now just found out that he's had another affair and you just know life is destroyed for you. You worked for the company for 35 years and without, it would seem, even an ounce of compassion, they've laid you off. You thought you had your finances in order and now they just told you that you threw a rod in the engine and you got to replace the whole thing and you don't have the dollars and it just seems like it's one after the other after the other after the other and it's your Masada. You had life all set up before you and now you've got the diagnosis. It's breast cancer. Radical mastectomy. Chemo. And you don't know, you don't know, you don't know the future and you're just ready to just collapse into your own fear. We live right now in a culture and you can see it in the political realm around us and what's happening. We, we live in an in a, in a environment of hopelessness right now. That's why there's probably going to be a big switch in the political scene because somebody's got to have an answer and these people don't and the people before them didn't. And, the, and so we, we've got this this cultural hopelessness. There is a new comic book out right now. It's called The Adventures of Unemployed Man. (laughs) I kid you not. Go to Barnes & Noble and find it. He has these nemesis, these enemies. For instance, the man. That's unemployed man. Then we've got the man. The man is the CEO that fired him and couldn't care less because he's all taken care of and you're not, and who cares? That's the man. Then there's the human resource. Human resource is a seductress who makes you feel like, oh, yeah, you'll have a job. No, you won't. Because she has the power to hire and fire. Then there's those evil twins, nickel and dime. You think you got everything in order, but they come and they nickel and dime you, and you got nothing. You might think that he's all alone, but unemployed man does have a partner. His name is Plan B. 
Now, the problem with plan B is that he is a gray-haired old man that nobody will hire. So our culture says to us, there is no hope. There is no way to break out. And in these last weeks and in the weeks to come, we're talking to you on a theme we've called breakout. There are those ceilings, if you will, of of problems and and issues that just seem to keep us from rising up to where we think we we need to be. We're using the imagery right now of the, the old game. Remember the old game, arcade game, breakout? Loved that game. Had to be fast. And you have to go through and you have to knock out each one of those. So in these weeks to come, we're, we're coming to, as we want to present to you, some of those things that, we've, that we have the power to knock out. They're the same blocks that our first century counterparts struggled with in the city of Corinth. And, and I'm going to get us back to Corinth in just a few moments. We're going to take a little time to get there. But, but here's my takeaway for this morning that I want to share with you that I learned in Israel. Faith costs what we think we don't have. And I want to define faith for us this morning because it's the only way that we really can break out and not just give up and die. And so it's, it's best described by the author to the book we call the book of Hebrews. And, and here's what he says in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So what is faith? So, Tom, if, if, if you and Cindy had a place in Naples, Florida, I'm not speeding prophetically, I, I, I don't know. And you were trying to tell me about this wonderful place you have in Naples, Florida, but I've never been there. And you can show me pictures, but you can take pictures of any place, anywhere, and tell me that it's yours. The only way that you can prove to me, other than me going there, and I'm not going to go there, is for you to present a legal document. What is that legal document called? A title. If you can show me the title, even though I'm not there, the title deed says, legally, it belongs to Tom and Cindy. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Literally, faith is the title deed to the things you hope for. And the evidence inside here of what you still do not yet see, but for some reason you know. And here's what God wants us to know, that he has always, always, always wanted to be the provider of what we need. That if we put our faith in him and truly trust him, he said, the moment you do that, you have the title deed to what you are hoping for, and I will bring it about in my timing. And even though you don't yet see it, I am your title deed, and your faith in me will bring a conviction in here that says it's done. I'm there. Faith is the title deed and the conviction. Now, there's an amazing way that God had his people express their trust and their faith in him. It was exercised and expressed by Abraham, who first walked with Jehovah God. And understand that Abraham was the first one to have conversation with Jehovah God and begin to understand who Jehovah God was in the midst of all these other gods that were being being espoused throughout the region. And he began to understand who this Jehovah God is. And in understanding who this Jehovah God is, he expresses himself in a faith movement. It is such a vital faith movement and expression 
that when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, God said, we need to establish laws so the people will understand how to express their worship to me. So put this faith movement in there, this faith expression in there. It is the same faith expression that when Jesus was talking to religious leaders, he said, you ought to do this in addition to opening your heart to all that God wants to do for you, but you ought to do this. It's called a moral imperative. You should still do this thing. What was it? He expressed it in his law. In Leviticus 27, he said this in verse 30. A tenth of the land's produce, whether grain from the ground or fruit from the trees, is God's. It is holy to God. A tenth of the entire herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, is holy to God. God said, here's what I want you to do, is I want you to take a tenth of what you own, and I want you to bring it to the central storehouse of the community of faith, the community of faith, and I want you to put it there, because what that becomes is the central resource to support worship and the giving to the poor. And if you'll research who God is, the two most important things for God is worship and giving to the poor. He said, I want you to bring that, and I want you to plant it there. In fact, you can't decide what you're going to do with it. You can't take that tent and say, oh, I'll put some here and here and here. He said, it is so important that you all bring it here, and I will then tell my priest how to distribute that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they brought it to the apostolic oversight, and they took care of it. He said, it's important for you to understand that this tenth is an expression of worship. Because the 10% worships the owner. So I was in a crowded party setting a while back. And we were all adults and we're talking, everybody had kids. And, and so a 17-year-old, I'd imagine she's about a 17-year-old girl, walked into the party And she walked over to her father, and she handed her father this, keys. It was the key to the car. She had been using the car. Now, you might say to her, whoa, 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 wait, wait. You got the car? Keep the keys. Why not? Oh, because she doesn't own the car. You see, when she handed those keys to him, there's a couple of things. See, because she could have gone over here and handed them to this person over here. Well, but that person over there doesn't own the car either. When she handed the keys to him, here's the dynamic that took place. In that split second, here's what happened. She's saying to him, I acknowledge your authority. You own this. I'm expressing my gratitude because you didn't have to let me use it, but you did. So thank you. And I am submitting to your, to my, might be my obedience to you because you told me what time the car should be in. Now hear me. When I take 10% of what I have and I bring it into the place he told me to bring it, I have declared by the very action that first of all, I acknowledge your authority. You own all this. Because the tenth goes to the person I declare is the owner. Secondly, I am now saying, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm expressing my gratitude. Thirdly, I'm saying I'm submitting to the obedience that I should have before someone who I count in awe. While I do that, God says, 
I have taken what you have given along with the others of the community of faith, and now I can support the worship expression that I desire, and I can provide for the poor through my priests. Now, in doing that, God has not given me the opportunity to say, I'll do what I want with it, even though I might, I'm trying to be generous, because he said, if it's the tithe that goes where I said, and it goes to the community of faith from which it then functions in the manner which I designed it to function in the culture in which it exists. God takes this giving thing really serious. And you know that I don't talk a lot about giving because, because of the image that the churches have portrayed and televangelists have portrayed for years that if you'll send me your dollar, I'll send you an anointed handkerchief and ten assorted demons in a bottle. You know, I'll just send you whatever you need. So I don't want to do that, but I, I've got to tell you the truth. God is serious about this. Watch what he does. A very rich young man and a ruler comes to see Jesus and says, what must I do to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He can't do it. And Jesus said, it's very difficult for those who are rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. They're distracted. You say, yeah, I can understand. It must be tough for Bill Gates. Now, wait a minute. If this week you bought two specialty coffees. You spent the same amount that 50% of the people in the world today make in a week. Who's rich? Thank you for the whistle. (laughs) Jesus said, or the disciples said, then who can get into the kingdom? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God everything is is possible. Shortly thereafter, Jesus encounters a very wealthy tax collector. They have an encounter, and the tax collector gives away 50% of his estate. If his estate's worth 500000 he just gave 250000 away to the poor. And Jesus said, today, today, salvation has come into this house. Why? Because he trusted God. The other did not. He said, you're the owner. The other said, I'm the owner. He said, I give you my best. The other said, you get leftovers. And God gets highly offended with leftovers. Several years back when Pam and I were still in Oregon, we had these gatherings once a a Sunday, or uh, one Sunday a month called Potluck. How many have ever been to a Potluck dinner? I've always espoused that anything connected with the word luck and dinner together should not be eaten. (laughs) So you make your way through the pot luck and say, who made that, who made that, who made that? I don't even know what that is. And you're very careful. So they're cleaning up the potluck, and the, and, the, and the senior ladies who are so good at that are putting it all away, and there's this new couple that have come to the church, and, and you can tell by the way they're, they're, they live that, that perhaps they're not the cleanest people in the world. And so they brought a crock pot with roast in it. And so one of the sweet old ladies says, would you like us to wrap this up so you can take it home? And I kid you not, 
He said, no, throw it out. We've been eating off it for the last five days. We prayed for the food all over again. You like those kind of leftovers? How many of you, if the milk's been in for a while, you unscrew that and you just you smell a little bit to make sure that it's not turned into cottage cheese, huh? I have got to be very careful in my expressions of worship to God that I do not provide him with leftovers because he is highly offended by those. If I think that my 30-second prayers will cover it, those are leftovers. If I think that me tipping God for a good service is a good thing, those are leftovers. If I think that I can go, go help somebody in need, if I have time after I've watched the three football games that are on TV, those are leftovers. How does God feel about leftovers? Malachi the prophet records God's words when he says this in Malachi 1.8. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask, asks the Lord of Heaven's armies. That was written in about 500 B.C. I want you to flash forward now to the first century A.D. In the city of Jerusalem, the church has been birthed. Many of them have recognized the fact that there are others who do not have very much, and some have lost their jobs and their families because of their faith in Jesus. So some are selling their property, cashing out their estate, and bringing the money to the disciples and saying, here, share this with the poor. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who have a piece of property. They sell it. And on the way to bring it in, he pockets a bunch of the money. He shows up by himself. Ananias, Sapphira goes off to Macy's because they're having a sale. And he stands before Peter and he hands the money to him. And Peter says, is this what you've got for the entire estate. He said, yes, he is falsifying his worship. He is giving a leftover. So you see, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to declare it was all. He could have given half and declared it as such. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he is falsifying his worship. And Peter says, who put it in your heart to lie to God? You could have done anything you want with this, but you are falsifying your worship, and with that, he drops dead. And they drag him out. As soon as the guys that took him out show back, back up at, at where they're seated, Sapphira walks in, and, and, and Peter said, is this the total amount that your husband brought? And she said, yes. And he said, why have you tested the Holy Spirit? the men that took your husband out are now here for you and she dies. And it says great fear came over the community of faith. You think that would happen? Sheesh. You'd be very careful when you give an offering. God takes this giving stuff serious because it's holy worship to him. We work off the principle here that that which Abraham 
expressed to God, and God said put it in the law, and Jesus said it's a moral imperative, this 10%. We work off of that here, that as we collectively put our stuff together, we're able to worship to the best of our ability and give to those who are lost, disenfranchised, marginalized, the poor. We work off that. In fact, here's what we say. We say that if you're a leader in this church, you do that. So if I'm a leader in this church, I do that 10% thing. If I'm a covenant member of this church and say, we're putting everything together, then I do that too. Now the problem is going to come in my life. If I pretend to worship, if I show up with you and I pretend that I'm doing that 10%, if I'm in leadership and I pretend I'm doing that, if I say I'm a covenant member and I pretend I'm doing that, God's not making you do that. It will not stop you from going into heaven if you don't do 10%. That's not the deal. But the deal is it has got to be honest worship. And it puts me in the place that I have now jeopardized myself and my family because of my falsified worship. You say, will God kill you? Oh, I hope not. But it will jeopardize my favor with God in other parts of my life. That when I'm praying for my children, those prayers begin to die. When I'm asking for protection, that protection begins to die. When I'm asking for a favor on the campus or at, 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 at my place of work, it will begin to die because I have falsified my worship. I simply want to say to us here, because of the economy and, and how it's bashed us, do not, do not pretend to be something that you're not. Do not pretend that you are living out this, this expression if you are not. God will understand and walk us through that. But let's not pretend that because it brings curses upon us. And what I must do if I'm in that spot is confess to God and say, I'm wrong, I'm so sorry. And I must say to leadership, help me walk through this thing and be honest with each other. Otherwise, parts of our life and our worship and our our outreach will die. I cannot pretend. I must get honest. Now, see, that's the ugly part of it. Let me take you to the really good part of it. Take a deep breath and go, he's so mean. If the 10% worships the owner, I want to tell you the 90% pleases the giver. God makes the 90% that's been worshipped, the 90% that that you have because you worshipped him with the 10, the 90% worshipped goes farther than the 100% hoarded. You say, can he do that? Hello? He's God. In fact, without prejudice of economic status, here's what Jesus says, Luke 6.38. Give and you will receive. And your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Who said that? Who? Jesus. See, there's this great love story in the Old Testament. Ruth has lost her husband. Her mother-in-law has lost her husband, and they make their way back to the the homeland, and and she's trying to take care of the mother-in-law, and... And so they're trying to work all this stuff out. And, and she goes out to the field to collect what's left over from the harvest. And Boaz sees her and he says to himself, Ooh, she's hot. I like her. 
And so he wants to reward her for her faithfulness to her family. And because he's interested in her relationally, he pulls her in, he sits her down, and he says, hold out your robe. And she holds out her robe, and he pours into her robe grain. Literally, the scripture says, 70 pounds of grain. 70 pounds. When Jesus says, Given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That is the imagery. It's just pouring in. God wants you to know that when you are trusting him and generous in what you give, he said, I will pour back into your robe that which is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. With the measure he said you use, it will be measured unto you. It's what God says. Even in the economy we face, he said, I want you generous. I don't know how this 10% thing works. But I've been doing it for 45 years. I know you thought I was 30. (laughs) There was this moment when my employer said, we cannot pay you anymore. I had to go home and tell Pam, we can't be paid anymore. We've got two toddlers a really healthy California mortgage. And and I don't have a job that pays money. So I go looking now for anything. I'll go paint a house. I'll I'll go work with a landscaper. I'm just trying to find anything I can find because I have no income. And so we would gather what God would, would provide she would do some babysitting and I would I would go work for the landscaper, I'd go paint a house and and we'd come home and, and so we'd get ready for the month and I'd have this much income. And I'd have this much bills. How do you get this to fill this? I don't know. But you know the first thing we would do? We would take ten percent of this and say, This is God's. And so here you go, God, because we're declaring you have authority in all of this. We're declaring that, that we trust you. We're great, grateful to you for what you've given us. And we're following you in obedience. And we're going to give this too so that, that your community of faith can continue to worship and we can give to the poor. I can't tell you how this happens. But for six months, till I started getting a regular paycheck, this filled this. I don't know how. One day I got a letter from the IRS in the middle of this and said, oh God, no, no, not the IRS. Satan is on the loose. (laughs) What am I going to do with, and I'm afraid to open it because I know they're going to say, you messed up, you're in, you owe us, and I I don't even have the money, and you know those people. Pam, get our firstborn ready because I opened it up and it said, Dear Mr. Eisner, Social Security number, blah, 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 blah. He said, You've done your taxes wrong. I knew it. You overpaid. What? <laughs> what they gave back paid our mortgage that month. And, and now I don't, I, don't tell them because they'll go back and check, so don't say anything to them. <laughs> One day, the doorbell rings. And Dave's standing at the door. Dave is in the Air Force. And Dave says, 
I don't know how to tell you this, but I just got promoted to first lieutenant. I thought, oh yeah, praise the Lord, he got first lieutenant. Blah, 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 blah. I can't get food, but he gets food. Blah, 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 blah. Ever feel that way? Because I already had somebody come by who was totally insensitive and said, hey, look at my new Nikon camera. Oh, here, wear this. Boom. Just. So I thought, oh, great. And I'm trying to be happy for him. And he said, so here's what. I got a really nice, healthy raise. And God told me that as long as you're unemployed, I will pay for your groceries. And every week, Dave came by, said, here, for your groceries, for your groceries, for your groceries. I don't know how he does it. But when he has authority, he takes this and he fills this. And I want to say to some of you that say, you know, I'd really like to try that, but 10% is just, then, then tell God I want to get there. Just start with one. Just see what he does with 1%. Trust him. Now, let me tell you what to do about that 90% you got left over. You're saying, leave that alone. No, I want to tell you about that 90%. If you're dealing with poverty issues right now, I want you to let you know that generosity is the best weapon against poverty. Generosity is. And you think it's the opposite. Now, recently, and if you're aware of the NFL and you're, and you're very aware of Brett Favre, you understand that Brett Favre has just you know, been accused of sending some very um, sexually explicit emails, and t- uh, text, not emails, but text messages and pictures to somebody that's not his wife. This last week, Deanna Favre was interviewed on television. And I said, what are you doing with this situation? How are you handling this thing? And she said, my faith is getting me through this. She said, on my refrigerator right now is the passage of Scripture by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 9 through 13 or 14. And then she quotes part of it. Here's what she quotes, Isaiah 41, 10. Don't be afraid, for I'm with you. Don't be discouraged, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I'll hold you up with my victorious right hand. And then she expressed what was her Masada, the moment that she just felt like turning over and dying. It was when her 24-year-old brother was killed in an ATV accident. And four days later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she said, I determined at that moment that I would not let the situation shape me, but I would shape the situation. And she said, I came to the conclusion, and she has a book out now with her, her pastor talking about this. She said, I determined that I would not draw in and close in and hold, but instead I realized that I must not open up and give out. And so she became generous. I want to tell you that faith is more than trusting that God will get us through. It's giving out what we think we don't even have to give. It's what Paul the Apostle said to the church in Corinth. And listen to his words. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop but the one who plants generously will be a, get a generous crop. You must each decide in your ha- heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, or really hilariously, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you'll always have, now catch this, then you'll have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. He said, I want you to take your 90% and I want you to plant it. Because when you plant stuff, if you put a seed down, you just don't get a seed, you get a bunch of seeds. Do you remember, remember the story of the loaves and fishes? 
that Jesus said we got to feed like 15, 20,000 people. And he said, what do you have? We've got a few loaves and a few fish. And so Jesus takes them and he blesses them. And then who does he give them to? Do you remember? Who does he give the bread to? To the disciples. He says, now you give it away. What if John would have grabbed that bread and go, man, look at all this bread. This is such good stuff. Ooh, I've got to keep some of this stuff. This is really good stuff. Bring me a bag. And, and kept it. They all distributed it out. And you know what they had left over? How much? Twelve baskets full. How many disciples? Huh? I want to encourage you to know that when you plant, you cannot outgive God. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do, especially in this economy. When you're facing poverty issues, give something you have. It's all about the opportunity. In this passage, and we don't have time to go through it right now, 2 Corinthians 8, He's talking to both those who lived in Macedonia and those who lived in Corinth. And those in Macedonia were dirt poor. And those in Corinth were pretty affluent. And he said, it doesn't matter your economic status. The rule applies for all of you. Take something you have when you have the opportunity and give it to somebody else who is in need. Give from what you have. And when you do... He said, God will be praised. He will be thanked. Secondly, love doing it. He said, oh, man, don't go, oh, you got to get this dumb offering. No, he said, God, here. No telling what you're going to do with this. Yes. Love doing it. No pressure. Thirdly, live generously. God said, I want to make this a lifestyle for you that at every moment, that you want to be generous, you'll be able to. And I will supply it so that you will. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that if you make 45000 a year right now, God will multiply it to ninety so that you can give more. What he'll probably do is let you stay at 45000 but a whole lot more is coming through. You follow me? He said, I want you that when you have opportunity, say here, 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 and that you give where the need is. If you met... Lucy, you would say she looks like somebody's grandma. Lucy has, in fact, if you met Lucy, the first thing she would do is she would hug you and then she'd introduce herself. She's that kind of person. She's lived in the same house for over 40 years, just down the street from where she used to work. She used to work at a specific corner because she used to be a prostitute. Used to be a drug addict. Used to sell her body. She had a friend begin to introduce her to who Jesus was and she put her faith in Jesus and it radically changed her, transformed her. She lives in that same house still. She doesn't have much. But if you come see Lucy, you'll probably find some of the girls off the street in her house because she cares for them. And when they're in trouble, she takes them in. She doesn't have a whole lot to share, but what she has to share, she shares. In fact, the word is on the street, if you're ever in need, go see Lucy. You can walk into Lucy's house, and sitting in that house, you will find prostitutes, you will find drug addicts, you'll find pushers, and you will find pimps. And she cares for them all the same with what she has, and it's not much. But I want to tell you that Lucy is not poor. And neither are we. It's time for us to break out. 
It's time for us to look at our Masada and say, you will not shape me, I will shape you. It is time for us not to hide and say, it's only going to get worse, but instead through our faith in God to say, you have control and I'm trusting you and I'm obeying you and I'm expressing gratitude to you and every moment you give me opportunity, I will share. See, we can roll over and die, but we can continue the heritage that's went way before us and spread the news to our children and to our children's children and to our children's children's children. And we can tell them it tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. So now, Father, I pray a freedom from fear in this place, a trust in your provision, and an adventure of discovering your generosity as we become like you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.